Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. In recent months, we've seen the Folklore Podcast covering a variety of strands. Pure folklore, books, films and sometimes even theatre. At one stage, this was easy. We had main episodes of the podcast and we had the book club. But as the subject matter has become more disparate, I've wondered what to do for the best. And the conclusion that I've come to is to return to first principles. So, for the last couple of episodes of this year, and starting properly with season 8 in January, all of our episodes will appear on the same place on our website and will take the Folklore Podcast as their main branding, with a smaller mention of whether we're looking at a particular type of media or just general folklore within that. I hope that will make things easier for everyone. I also have plans, and they are just plans at the moment, because I'm very tied up with book writing and other projects, to put out more of my own personal episodes in Season 8, with me just whiffling on about interesting folklore themes. There will still be plenty of guests and other things too, but I'd like to get those episodes that I used to do back into the mix more as well. Do let me know if you think this is all a good thing, or indeed a bad thing. You can email thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Twitter at FolklorePod, and we're also now on Mastodon, just in case Twitter becomes part of the inevitable heat death of the universe. If you are a Mastodon user, you'll find us at FolklorePod at mastodonapp.uk. Do come and join us. There is a healthy community forming there. Stories are vital to our understanding of the world. We draw huge cultural significance from our embedded tales. They make us who we are, and they help us to understand our identity and our place in the world. They are part of our culture. If you edit that culture, then you change people's beliefs. Such is the link between them. So, what happens if we rewrite our history? Indeed, what has happened when that has been done for us? These are the questions that we're seeking to answer in this episode of the podcast. How was folklore effectively weaponized in terms of war? And how is it, or could it be used in that way in the future? Helping us to understand the subject is author, journalist and broadcaster Jane Thin, whose novel Queen High, written under the pen name C.J. Carey, was published earlier this year by Quercus Books. Although a standalone read, the book also serves as a sequel, in part, to the earlier Widowland, and is a counter-history, imagining a Britain that did not go to war with Germany, but rather formed an alliance which adopted some of the key German beliefs of its time. Its commentary helps us to understand the implications of changing our historical knowledge and the ways in which we read folklore. Here's Jane speaking on the subject with our literary correspondent, Hilary Wilson. Yeah, hi, uh, this is Hilary Wilson here with the Folklore Podcast. Uh, today I am talking to C.J. Carey, the author of Widowland and Queen High, the newly released book in the Rose Ransom series. She also writes under the name Jane Thin, 
where she is well known for writing historical fiction. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so Widowland and Queen High are uh, fiction books that focus upon an alternative history. Would you like to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, it's a it's a counterfactual. It's set in the 1950s. And um, we're in a world in which England and Germany never went to war. And instead, they formed a grand alliance. And Britain has been become a protectorate of Germany under the aegis of a real a real life figure called Alfred Rosenberg, who was one of um, Hitler's gurus. And Alfred Rosenberg in, in pre-war Germany had always wanted England. He'd always asked Hitler, you know, should, should an alliance come about? I'd like to have England. And so this has come to, come to pass. And so England is a protectorate. And Rosenberg had some very um, extraordinary ideas about how to organise society, including he, he was a big fan of the caste system. So now in the world of Widowland, he, England is divided in women are divided into castes. There are six castes which begin from the elite caste, who are called Gellies, that's their nickname, right down to um, a caste right at the bottom who are nicknamed Frieda's. And these women, these are women over 50 who have no children and no, no man. And they're um, absolutely the least useful people in societies. They're left to live in very run down areas called widow lands. And they're given the lowest rations, the, the worst of everything. And so this is a this horrifying society, really, um, is um, is the England of 1953. And what happened in 1953 was its coronation year. But mm -hmm. in Widowland, it's the coronation of Queen Wallace and King Edward. And they, they've come to the throne and the leader is coming over from Germany to witness their coronation. So this is the backdrop of what is a, a, a fast moving uh, mystery about um, an assassination attempt and subversive activity in a land um, very different from the real Britain. Yeah, very different, but also very based in history. Yeah, I was fascinated by the amount of historical fact and speculation that could come from that, that you were able to just slide in there. This is the real joy, I think, because I'd, I'd written so many um, very sort of uh, faithful historical novels. I'd, I'd always thought it would be a fantastic liberation to write an alternative history, a counterfactual, in which you take things and you spin them ever so slightly in a sort of sliding doors way. And really, so that so the Britain of Widowland is, is just um, both similar and different. And it's based around this great big what if of the 20th century, which is what if Edward had not abdicated when he married Wallace or when he was planning to marry Wallace. And um, that is a very real possibility. That's a very real possibility. If he'd stayed on the throne and if then Halifax um, had become prime minister instead of Winston Churchill, again, mm -hmm. totally credible, totally possible. And um, so uh, in this in this instance, the what if is that uh, Winston Churchill isn't prime minister at all. In fact, he's not mentioned um, or only mentioned once in the novel. Um, Halifax was prime minister. And in 1940, 
um, the alliance is formed and uh, Britain becomes a protectorate. And that is really, really possible, um, really imaginable. And Edward and Wallace come back from France and they ascend the throne and they run a regime that is is, is really much more um, much more unpleasant than the regime that, that did exist. How did you go about doing history for a book such as this? Um, well, because I've written so many books set around wartime and pre-war Europe, mm-hmm. um, I had lots of these ideas in my mind, and I, you know, all all these things were were milling around. But um, also, the alternative was there. So the central idea, or one of the central ideas of Widowland, came to me because I was researching um, how the Nazis controlled literature, and. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that the Nazis banned books. We've all got a picture of a big bonfire in which books are being burned. But they did something much more sophisticated than that as well. Rosenberg set up um, an SS task force, and which went through occupied Germany, uh, occupied Europe rather, and all the libraries, the private collections of books. And he had his task force um confiscate these books and then a team of scholars rewrite history books so that they told the correct history according to national socialist ideology i was so amazed at this and i thought wouldn't it be astonishing if you took a sort of imaginative leap and you had the great classics of english literature being rewritten to fit nazi ideology and so that's what that's what comes to pass in in widowland our heroine is given this task um, to rewrite famous famous novels um, of English literature, which she does. Yeah, I thought that was an utterly fascinating idea, because you're very correct, you know, within the book by saying that you know, even if you hadn't, even if people weren't reading these great classics, the idea of the story would still survive because it's mentioned and it's just infused in so much of culture. So retelling it, you know, recasting it, editing it, it makes sense that you'd have to do that because people will still know that it exists. Absolutely. I mean, and and I took also a lot of this from the the, the real life history of, of how Himmler thought about um, how the occupied territories would teach people literacy and what kind of literacy you would have. But anyhow, um, yeah, I thought... You would get rid of a lot of books. A lot of books would become completely inaccessible. But the great classics are sort of written down, at least for a generation, into our consciousness. And we still know, you know, Jane Eyre, Pride and Prejudice. So what can you do? What you can do is you can just correct them. And this is Rose's task. She's brought along and and she's um, she's told, look, these books are going, are going to remain on the library shelves. But... The fact is, we've got to rewrite the women. So we've got to have Lizzie Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, who's a bit less intelligent. And we've got to have Jane Eyre, who's a bit less feisty and a little more little more kind of obedient. And we've got to have Dorothea Brooke, who doesn't want to live her own life in Middlemarch, you know. And so you just slightly correct. But of course, in reading these novels for the first time, Rose undergoes this journey herself, which is that she sees these women, these heroines gaining agency over their lives and their individuality. And she the scales fall from her eyes and she realizes so much about the world she's living in. So 
I thought it would be, just be so enjoyable to have somebody encountering these novels for the first time. So that's that's her job. Well, it was fascinating to me that Jane Austen could be edited down. <laughs> I, I mean, she's such a feisty author to try to change that. But you you have little snippets you know, throughout the book of the stuff that Rose is editing, which I thought was just absolutely brilliant as well. It's eerie to see how easily a few word changes it can alter things. Such as such as in Jane Eyre, um, reader, he married me. So the famous quote is, reader, I married him. And of course, Jane has agency in that. She's the one doing the marrying. But that has to be changed because it should be the man's, the man's decision to marry the woman. So she changes it to, reader, he married me. Um, oh. But there's, there's many of there's That was the fun of it, actually thinking how you would change, how you would change little bits. So, um, for example, Wuthering Heights, which is a kind of nightmare for the Nazis because it's full of you know Heathcliff as kind of, of sort of just gypsy origin, possibly, mm-hmm. but at least all these skinned and oh, you know, so not an Aryan hero, and so. Um, Rose has had to put a lot of work into that. But actually, Jane Austen is even harder because Jane Austen is so subtle. Oh, yeah. She gives her messages subtly. And so Rose has really tussled with those. Um, but um, that was that was part, part of the fun of, of, of the novel, just having, having a, a look at what you would do. But, of course, this is her job and this is what she's doing And until the novel opens. And when the novel opens... She's given a new job um, alongside it, a rather urgent task, um, which is, so the leader's coming in two weeks' time exactly, and yet all around the country on public buildings, subversive graffiti is being is appearing, and the subversive graffiti is forbidden, lines from forbidden works by women like Virginia Woolf, for example, um, or Mary Wollstonecraft, strengthen the female mind and there will be an end to blind obedience. This is driving the authorities crazy because, you know, it, they, they're very worried that the leader's going to come over and see all the great buildings dogged with these outrageous messages. And so um, Rose is asked to look into it. Um, it was reminding me a little bit, the use of graffiti. Uh, there was... A subversive graffiti, I believe it was within the 1980s in uh, Scotland, that was always signed King Mob, with the notion uh-huh. that you can't actually suppress the full populace. You know, if one of us is taken down, the rest of us will still rise. That's really, uh, that. that's, yeah, well, graffiti is like that, though, isn't it? By its very nature, um, it it gives an idea that there are multiple authors behind it. Yeah. Um, and so, but yeah, yeah. So in the story, the 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 suspicion is that the graffiti is emanating from the Widowlands, mainly because they're the only part of the population who've got that deep knowledge of all this kind of forbidden literature, and and therefore Rose is sent in to to meet the widows and try and find out where it's coming from. Uh, but she is uh, sent in with the particularly interesting task of recording the folklore. Yes. Um, because there's a particular interest among the higher ups in folklore within your book, Absolutely. which 
is interesting because this is something that you know did exist within the Nazi regime. Absolutely. You know this uh, joined past that there's a shared heritage. You know among the people of the motherland and Britain in particular, there's the certain affinity within the past that should be nourished. So within that folklore, you know they believe that this can be found which was a very real belief for a very long time, particularly within the Victorian era. Yeah, you were absolutely right to, put, to point that out. And folklore, um, the Nazi Germany is a very, very good example of how folklore and a mythic past can be used sometimes for malign ends as well. Um, Himmler was the, the Nazi who was most interested in folklore, and he... So interested was he, actually, that he had his own something called a witch unit, an SS witch unit, um, which you would think would be awful. They were sent out into the forests and into the into the countryside to search for witches, but actually um, was not awful because he believed that, that witches um, held, held kind of truths that other people didn't know. But in other ways... Um, Himmler used what he genuinely believed to be this idea of a mythic past um, in a deeply malign way. For example, he built his castle, Favelsberg in Germany, on a, on a place where ley lines converge, which he mm-hmm. felt was the holiest site in Germany. And it's a horrible, frightening place to be. But um, as you as you said, he believed that there was a sort of ancient brethren of... Um, Aryan peoples and a lot of the um a, a lot of Nazi energy was put into searching out a kind of Aryan um Aryan brotherhood that stretched back as far as you know stretched back to the beginning of time but they sent out scientists to Tibet and uh, the, the North Pole and things to try and find examples of Aryan supremacy um and so I've used I, I mean I've studied that a lot but I thought in this novel where Himmler, Himmler is is a significant figure. Um, this enthusiasm for folklore has caused um, the protector to want to want to do a great book about the mythology of Britain, and he's particularly wants the widows to be interviewed because oh, oh, women know about folklore; it's the kind of thing they know about, and he wants them to talk about it. And they knew about it to the extent within the book itself to even be using a bit of floriography to communicate the ideas of the resistance. You know, yeah, um, you, you actually name-dropped the uh, Victorian flower language a little bit within it. You're talking about the yellow flowers being a sign of resistance, being mm. laid at the site of different uh, different graffitis that were left. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's if you're a resistance in this police state, you need ways to communicate. And so, as you say... Victorian flower language is one way. And so the yellow flower, whenever um, a yellow flower is seen, it's always a sign of resistance and the resistors use it. They tie roses to bridges and things so that just to give a visible sign. Um, Because folklore is is a method of of communication and communicating deep truths um, that sometimes can't be communicated in any other way. Um, And well, I'm sure you're, you don't need me to tell you that. But um, I think that folklore, 
would inform many resistances, and it certainly has informed the resistance in Widowland, yeah. Uh, you talk about it, um, that way of communicating, in an interesting way, you know, moving through Queen High a bit, you talk about the history of the Reformation and how churches were actually destroyed because they didn't want the illiterates to be able to form their own ideas through the images that were left there because they would have absolutely beautiful um, stories within the stained glass, stories within engravings and the like. But you don't want them forming their own ideas because imagination can be power. Imagination is everything. So yes, so in, in Queen High, the um, uh, the churches have been largely decommissioned, but they've um, uh, uh, the widows remember the time in the English Reformation when they were all whitewashed um, to get rid of the wall paintings because before people could read, they could they could imagine, they could look at pictures, and they could imagine. And in Queen High, also another form of imagination is being um, stamped on, which is poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Poetry's been outlawed and it's um, it's almost entirely Samistat. And the reason the authorities are so frightened about poetry is because poetry is a very indirect form of communication. It's it's oblique. It's not, sometimes it seems like a code. Um, it evokes emotion, but you can't, it's not a kind of, you know, someone's not even grammatically correct and rational. And the, the authorities hate this and fear it, and they fear messages are being sent through poetry. And I took a lot of this from Stalin, because Stalin was very worried about poetry too, and suppressed a lot of poetry. Poetry, of course, is so intensely powerful. And so um, in in Queen High, po- Rose is in charge of, um, she's been appointed poet hunter, and she's in charge of tracking down illegal meetings of people to read poetry sort of you know in kind of warehouses and and secret secret places and this really this really happened in Russia people got together because the need to speak to to recite poetry and to be with other people and hear poetry was really strong and um so so when you say imagination I that's a much that's a huge broad issue which I'm really interested in I think that um, when I was trying to picture a totalitarian society, um, I thought I saw that one of their um, controlling impulses would be to suppress imagination, to stop people imagining. And there are various ways that you can do it. Um, One of the ways is to control people's lives, fill their lives up with meetings and kind of communal things so much that they never get time on their own. And this was very much what Nazi Germany did. It made everything, you know, girls, boys, women, men had to go to meetings in the evenings, Hitler Youth and mother service meetings and stormtrooper meetings. And the whole idea was that you never spent time on your own because that's the time that ideas come and you think for yourself. And um, as Stalin said, you know, um, Ideas are more powerful than guns, and we don't give our people guns, so why would we give them ideas? The idea is that you stop people thinking, and um, poetry makes you think, and literature makes you think, and it also makes you empathise, and so that that's why societies, or the society in Widowland and Queen High, are so keen to suppress this activity. 
one of the things that really struck me within the books was how well you portrayed the stickiness of these stories and poetry, just the stickiness of ideas, where as much as a person might try to suppress them, you know, certain things remain. There are certain ideas that I'm sure hadn't been thought of a lot. Like in uh, Queen High, you know, make a reference to the ravens in the Tower of London, that as much as they might try to suppress this idea, there's still something of it that is an undercurrent that can't be suppressed. You know, people still believe, even if they don't necessarily want to believe. You know, a piece of poetry might lodge itself in your brain. You know, there's something about it that just sticks. You know, lines from um, Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, lines from Virginia Woolf, they just, they lodge in. And the I'd never read anything that quite portrayed that stickiness as well as what you wrote. I think I so I that that's I'm really glad you said it. But I I wanted to um, get this idea that culture is made up of very deeply buried, many very deeply buried stories and words, um, poems and and lines um, that we know we know through the generations, and that it can't easily be scrubbed clean. And that's what makes culture and it, it, what make, actually makes in distinct cultures. So um, American kids might have di- these different, a different mindset from British kids. You know, you've got different stories running through your brain, um, but they are very deeply embedded and they're really important because they're, they're, they're what guide us. They what, they what guide our entire um, cultural response um, that, just like fairy tales were so important in Germany, tremendously important for for um, trying to teach people that you know good is rewarded and evil is punished mm-hmm. and things. And you know, the Brothers Grimm obviously came from Germany, and um, I mean the Brothers Grimm were very interested in themselves because when they um, when they started collecting their poetry, there was a big myth that they went into the woods and they collected their stories from old women and people who'd been there for generations and actually they didn't they didn't it wasn't an oral history like that but there was very much the impulse at the beginning of Germany as a nation to create this idea that stories had been going back for generations centuries and in Britain that is really the case and um, so I, I wanted this idea that we're all an accretion you know a sort of endless palimpsest of cultural influences, and you can't scrub them away as quickly as you think. Yeah, editing them might make a certain amount of headway within doing that, but you still can't get rid of everything. And there's yes, yeah, so exactly that that idea that you've just you, you've just set, you've just um, expressed is what I tried to tackle in Queen High when this terrible thing has happened. This event has happened in Widowland. And the regime wants you to forget it. It's awful. It's caused us lots of trauma. But now it's time to forget. And so the whole of the impetus of the regime is to help people unlearn what's happened, to scrub memories clean. But my view is that memories can't be erased in quite the way we think. Uh, There was something that got referenced within your book that I thought was particularly interesting in terms of more modern folklore, uh, you make a reference to the Hitler diaries. 
which you have a personal connection to. Um, would you care to speak about that a bit? I would. I've always been. Um, I, I've always been interested for a variety of reasons in this. Um, I, I obviously haven't mentioned the, the name Hitler. I've deliberately not mentioned the name Hitler actually, because I wanted it to be a bit more generic. But um, so the Hitler. I used to work at the Sunday Times, and the Hitler Diaries um, were um, the revelation of the Hitler Diaries was published by the Sunday Times. And for those those of your listeners that don't know about this, there had long been sort of tantalizing stories um, from the end of the Second World War that Adolf Hitler had kept a diary and that all his innermost thoughts had been committed to the pages, just like in real life, Joseph Goebbels did keep a diary and we know what Joseph Goebbels thought day to day. But um, there'd been the search for the diary and there'd been various people saying they'd found the diaries, that had been proved to be hoaxes. And finally, somebody came along and said, look, we do have, these are actually the Hitler's diaries. And the Sunday Times commissioned experts and eminent historians, including Lord Dacre, who is a very serious historian of the Second World War, to go and look at these diaries. They were in Germany. And um, he he authenticated them. He said, yeah, I think they are. I think they are actually Hitler's diaries. So the Sunday Times started this huge splash we found the Hitler diaries. They paid a huge amount of money and they prepared this huge splash. And on the Saturday night, probably afternoon, that the um, that the paper was going to press, Lord Dacre began to have some doubts. But such is the nature of newspapers that if you've put a lot of effort into things and you've got the pictures and you've written the stories, if somebody has some doubts just as the presses are starting to roll, it's kind of too late. It wasn't really too late. Somebody could have pressed the button and said, actually, we're not going to do this. But they didn't. The, the courage wasn't there. And so the paper went ahead and then became a laughing stock because the Hitler diaries were very, very rapidly proved to be um, just a complete hoax and easily disprovable hoax because the paper was the paper was too modern, et cetera, et cetera. So that, um, but in in this alternative um, alternative world, these diaries really did exist. And I mean, as as somebody who's kind of studied the Third Reich, if you if you look at Hitler, the fact is, what everybody knew about him was he was actually really lazy, um, mm-hmm. and he was not the kind of person who would go back nerdishly back to his room every night and write down his diaries. You know, so actually the idea that Hitler kept a, a, a kind of minute, detailed diary. It's probably easy, easy to kind of disprove and should have been. But I thought what fun it would be, having worked at the Sunday Times, to actually, in my counterfactual, have a real Hitler diary. So that's that's what I've done. Yeah, it's fascinating that the idea of him keeping a diary mm-hmm. survived for so long, you know, considering what his health was like towards the end of his life and... You know, all of that. It's fascinating that people have hunted for it for so long. Because the yearning to know, and we still have that yearning to know motivation, to know what Hitler was really like, what really drove that person, is so strong. Um, Ava Brown kept a diary, his his girlfriend slash wife, and as I said, Goebbels kept a diary. So we know about the people around him, but he's still a void in many ways, Hitler, and he's 
this horrifying void. And, and I think our yearning to understand people is so great that we wanted it to be true. You also, as I uh, had mentioned to you in our talk before, had made reference to the Amber Room, which is another one of the great legends of World War II, which just delighted me to no end. <laughs> <laughs> it was so fun. Well, I'm so, I'm so glad you got that reference because there won't be many people that got it. But the Amber Room is indeed, um, it, it, it's a fabled um beautiful room that um, that belonged to Catherine de' Medici at at one point. And it was made by Prussian craftsmen in in the 18th century. And it was these huge panels of beautiful amber and the light that comes through was said to be so astonishing that you felt the serenity when you walked into the room. It was was all gilded with gold and it disappeared. And the, the theory was that the Nazis had stolen it and they were going to, they were going to, reassemble it somewhere and that somewhere turns out to be Windsor Castle (laughs) which is just amazing that image but I I I loved how you cut to the quick with everything with this focus on art you know with the focus on if you're able to edit the culture then the culture will believe things you know this is something that we've seen you know throughout history in a manner you know great manner of ways with the focus on poetry that Queen High has, it was making me remember some of the early translations that we have of uh, Michelangelo's poetry and Sappho's poetry, where both were edited so that they would appear to be heterosexual. You know, pronouns were changed. And, you know, with the pronouns changing, everybody but the great experts for a great period of time, you know, were saying, no, these people were heterosexual. Um, no. You know, the experts would be able to say, oh, well, if we look at all of this, you know, there is evidence to the contrary. But mm. because this was what was viewed in popular culture, mm. then this becomes the prevailing, you know, idea. Because mm. not everybody has the time to really dig deep. And it just fascinated me. You know, we saw this with some of the um, Victorian edits that took place to Grimm's um, stories as well. You know, and to do a lot of just the collected Celtic folklore. So, I, suppose, I suppose realistically all all regimes and administrations will attempt to edit culture in one way or another to suit their own um to suit their own particular ideology. And I suppose it's hopeless to expect that 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 they won't. But um it can be done subtly or it can be done brashly. I mean, one of the laughable things about the Nazis was how um, actually, how extraordinary their their attempts were. For example, with degenerate art, which I'm, I know you know about, things like Picasso and mm-hmm. um, uh, any form of cubism and and anything that Hitler regarded as against nature, like having green skies or blue trees, um, was all classified as degenerate. And he had he collected it all together in a big exhibition in 1937 in Munich and he said look we're going to have this huge exhibition of degenerate art it's disgusting and I want you to see how repulsive it is and of course there were queues round the block everybody wanted to go it was marvellous but um, the so that was a very brash and kind of a stupid approach to art but subtlety is the more frightening thing to to um, to edit cultures subtly is actually more scary because you don't know it's happening. 
um, I think what they did with rewriting history, the SS scholars that rewrote history, um, was meticulous um, and frightening. Um, but I think it behoves us all to think about how our culture is edited and in whose interests it's being edited and what ideas it's aimed to reflect. Because um, it's it's hopeless to think that nobody's going to try and remodel the culture. Of course they will, always, for benign reasons or notionally benign reasons. But um, we need to look at it. We need to think about what people are doing and not take things at face value. Uh, one of the things that was interesting was the focus upon Jane Eyre, you know, throughout Widowland. And, you know, Jane Eyre with its othering. Um, I was seeing a nice parallel between that and the treatment of the Fridas within the books. Mm-hmm. And in particular, the treatment of Rose's father. You know, I had thought that it was interesting because when you're othering someone, you know, you're treating them as monstrous. You know, they become yes. the monster. They become, you know, something to be greatly avoided. But the great tradition of Gothic literature is to find something human within them and to end up getting wisdom from them, which is, you know, very much what's happening. That's nice. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a really, actually, you've just, the way that you've put that is, is brilliant because, um, that's part of the element I hadn't even thought of. I mean, I'd use Jane Eyre as the great, you know, huge manifesto for kind of um, female independence that arose in the 19th century. And it's the beloved book that's been copied and remodeled as in, for example, Rebecca, which is a retelling of Jane Eyre, where you've got the, the, the big man in the, the huge house with the secret past, um, but which is also the Gothic element, you know, the Gothic monster element. But um, what, what Jane Eyre does so well is it makes you feel what it is like to be stigmatised. So Jane Eyre is, um, you know, the the poor relation who doesn't get to go and um, exercise, you know, and she's, she's the kind of poor governess. And so that idea that, which the Brontes use, that you can actually, um, there are people in society who are stigmatised and they need to overcome those stigmas was um, why I used Jane Eyre. So as you completely say, the other ring. Um, but um, also I just think, because Jane Eyre is just this, as I say, this manifesto book, if you were going to rescue rescue novels, which novels would you rescue? You know, And I think it's spoken to so many women over so many years um, that that's why I used that. But I take your point about the goth thing. That's very interesting. Uh, you also had a rather nice reference to the very, very, very much disproven idea that Frankenstein was actually written by Percy and not Mary Shelley. Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, I, so I so wanted um, to use Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, partly because, which appears at the end of Widowland, but because as we know, she was 18 and, and, oh. and Frankenstein was written in this um, rainy week in a holiday in Switzerland uh, she'd gone on holiday with her husband Percy Shelley and um, Byron and, and a couple of other people all with rain and um, they thought what should we do let's have a competition to write a horror story I'm sure your listeners already know this but I'll just repeat it so oh, they it's had, a great they story had, 
they have this competition. Everything's grim. It's the weather's terrible, and they sit down. They all write uh, a ghost story, and Mary Shelley, age eighteen, writes Frankenstein, and it's it, the others realize immediately how great it is. Um, but when it gets back to London, there's a lot of kind of you know, did she really write this? You know, and of course. I also chose um, Frankenstein because partly because it's a book by a woman, partly because it's about something amazing that is created by by a German, a German, you know. So this is why the authorities think it's a great book to give Hitler, because it's about a German genius who creates something amazing. But it's Frankenstein. Um, and also partly because Mary Shelley is obviously the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft and um I wanted that direct reference to Mary Wollstonecraft again because Mary Wollstonecraft is, and her vindication of the rights of woman is such a seminal tract in English literature. Um, so for all those reasons, Frankenstein comes in at the end of the novel and hits the the um, you know the monster's anguish and beware for I am fearless and therefore powerful. But the modern Prometheus also coming to give yes. us knowledge, knowledge of what we've done, you know, knowledge of yeah. what we still should do. Yes. And I, I love the focus, you know, on Mary Shelley there. I, I love the just hilarity, you know, of people thinking that Percy had helped her with it. when exactly. There's so much evidence to the contrary. Well, he encouraged her with it, but, you know, this was all her genius. And I love to focus on Wollstonecraft as well, because I feel like Wollstonecraft has not gotten enough credit, you know, in recent years. You know, she's Absolutely. a voice that's fallen a bit to the wayside, but thankfully, um, some of the recent biographies that have come up um, on Shelley, you know, have really tipped the hat to her in a gorgeous way. But she's think- really important. And I think you're, you're quite right, because she died in, um, when she died very early, she hasn't got the level of attention that that she really should have done and um she um she's getting a lot of attention here because um there's a new statue of her and people have started to talk about Mary Wollstonecraft but she's a very important character as is Mary Shelley and um I the reason I also used Frankenstein is the first edition not even the first edition the handwritten edition of Frankenstein the one that actually Mary Shelley sat and wrote in that miserable holiday um, <laughs> is kept in the Bodleian Library in, in, in Oxford, which is the scene of the last of, of the final chapter of Widowland. So I wanted a real book that could really be presented to the leader, which is what happens at the end of the book. And um, this is the book they've chosen. Well, it's absolutely brilliant. So I... You know, I need to ask, you know, are we going to get to expect a third book in this series? Well, but you know, the funny thing is when I finished the end of Queen High, which is actually in when it comes out in the States next year, it's going to be called Queen Wallace. But anyhow, um, I thought, oh, that's it. I'll leave it there. But since then, I kind of and this sounds mad to say about a kind of bleak dystopian landscape, but I've kind of missed that world. And um and so I, I actually think we might return to it for a third, yes. Well, there is a certain strain of hope going through it, though. Yeah, Definitely I think, a strain of hope. And yeah, there's more... I think there's that there's more, some beautiful resiliency you know, throughout I think, the books. I, I think the, the 
cultural um, the, the cultural points that I really wanted to explore are actually becoming more pressing. The whole idea around um, who controls your thought, to what extent can you speak freely, um, these, these ideas, to what extent can you read what you want to read, these ideas are gathering pace. They're, um, the, they're, they're becoming more important. And I think there are increasingly more ideas, particularly about the polarisation of society, how now you can't just float along in the middle and say, well, I've got an open mind, um, I make up my mind. Now there's this is kind of dreadful polarisation where you have to be in one camp or another camp. Um, and of course, that very much benefits any kind of authoritarian regime. They want people to have very firm ideas and not to explore ideas too strongly and not to allow debate. And so I, th I think these are ongoing ideas and without being too heavy about it, um, I, th I think that there's more story there. But I mean, I would, I would say first and foremost, you know, these are these are mysteries slash thrillers. They're, they're supposed to be read at a pace and kind of, um, you know, to be entertaining as well as as well as provoking. And I think what you do with folklore is so important. I'm very, very interested in it. And um, I'm so glad you're doing this, this podcast. Well, I think that there's a lot that we can find, you know, if we do look back into the folklore. I mean, folklore can be weaponized as you showed quite uh, harrowingly but at the same time you know if we're really digging into what hasn't been edited you know what is there there's a lot that we can learn and there's a ton that we can learn by how people edit it you know as they move forward yeah and i think that your books really show that in a very eerie way um, but they are brilliant mysteries. They are brilliant thrillers. I was at the edge of my seat. I really couldn't put them down and I'm eager to, <laughs> I'm eager to read more. Um, can we expect, uh, anything new from you soon? Um, so my next, the novel I'm working on at the moment isn't the third part of the mm -hmm. Woodland series, but the, I, I will probably do the third part after the novel I'm on now. So, um, yeah, whenever that will be, yes. And who knows what, what situation we'll be in then. But um, oh, Where can people find you online you know, if they want to so, um, see more of your work? So I have my website, which is, my website is Jane Thin, which is spelled T-H-Y-N-N-E. Um, or I'm on Twitter, CJ Carey, Jane Thin. And um, I'm sort of, yeah, just Google me and there right. I am. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and I thank hope that we'll be able to talk to you again soon. Queen High and Widowland are published by Quercus Books, and you can find them in all good bookshops, both on your high street and online. And you'll also find a review on the Folklore Podcast website. The Folklore Podcast is an independent podcast bringing you free access to the world's experts in the fields of folklore and associated areas. We also look after the Folklore Library and Archive, a volunteer-led organisation dedicated to collecting and preserving folklore in all forms and making it freely available for the future. You can learn more at www.folklorelibrary.com. If you can help us to keep our work going, please consider either joining the Folklore Podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast, where you can find extra content, or, alternatively, 
making a one-off donation at www.folklorelibrary.com fundraising. If you can't help financially, then please do engage with us on social media and share our work. By doing this, you are actively helping us to reach more people. Thanks for listening. See you next time.